This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Patient Safety Assessment by Kevin Bullock Healthcare workers in all healthcare settings should always adhere to the latest World Health Organization guidelines on hand hygiene and barrier precautions before and after contact with a patient, bodily fluids, or patient surroundings. For more information, please watch our video entitled Hand Hygiene. Hi, my name is Kevin Bullock. I'm a clinical supervisor in the Department of Respiratory Care at Boston Children's Hospital, and this will be a lecture on the comprehensive patient ventilator safety assessment that will be broken up into two parts, the patient and the ventilator. The purpose of a patient safety assessment is to assess patient stability, ensure airway stability, ensure optimal patient ventilator interaction, and also to ensure appropriate emergency equipment is present at the bedside. We will begin by assessing the vital signs. This is the first part of the patient safety assessment because patient stability is of the utmost importance. We take a look at the vital signs monitor to assess if our patient's vital signs are within the target ranges for the patient's age, weight, and disease process. If the answer is yes, we are stable, we can proceed with our patient safety assessment. If the answer is no, our patient is unstable, we will still continue with the patient safety assessment, noting that it may reveal the cause of the instability. We will then move on to the patient's breath sounds to assess if there are any adventitious breath sounds that may be contributing to instability. When assessing a patient's breath sounds, we should auscultate similar regions on opposite sides for comparison. While we have our stethoscope on, we should also auscultate the neck to listen for a leak around our endotracheal tube cuff and assist us in our cuff management. We should also assess the inflation of our pilot balloon. After we assess breath sounds, we will move on to the patient's airway. We want to ensure that the airway is secure, either by tape or a fixation device, that is the appropriate size for the patient, and that it is at the correct insertion depth. Here is a chart of suggested size endotracheal tubes for the newborn ranges. Once we get to six months of age or greater, we may use a formula to estimate the patient's endotracheal tube size. Your age plus 16 divided by four will give you an approximate size. We may then multiply that size times three to approximate the depth of insertion. All patients, we would add two to four centimeters for a nasal intubation. Approximating the appropriate size endotracheal tube is essential to determining the appropriate insertion depth. When assessing our patient's airway stability, we want to note the size of the endotracheal tube and its exit mark from the mouth. At Boston Children's Hospital, we use the lip for our exit marking. Other institutions may use the teeth or gums. Once we have assessed the appropriate size and depth of insertion of the endotracheal tube, we will move on to the endotracheal tube cuff should one be present on the endotracheal tube. 
There are various methods of assessing the endotracheal tube cuff that should be determined at the institution you are in. The goal of assessing cuff inflation is to prevent tracheal damage from overinflation, placing undue stress on the walls of the trachea. It is also to prevent microaspiration and therefore ventilator-associated events. Proper cuff management will also allow effective ventilation and more accurate monitoring of tidal volumes and end-tidal carbon dioxide. Minimal leak technique is a method that may be used to assess a slight leak at the peak of inspiration. Minimally occlusive volume will take your minimal leak technique and add just a little more air to occlude that leak. The last measurement of cuff inflation would be by an actual cuff pressure monitor. When we monitor cuff pressure, we want to maintain a cuff pressure between 20 and 25 centimeters of water and not to exceed 30 centimeters of water. Next, we will move on to the skin assessment. We want to assess the skin to prevent device-related pressure ulcers. This is especially important in patients with low cardiac output states or severe edema. Endotracheal tube placing pressure on the lips can cause mucosal damage, erythema, breakdown, and in severe cases, necrosis. This is especially true with nasal intubations. It is a highly vascular area and is prone to being torqued and having many more pinch points depending on how the tube is fixated to the patient. When we assess the skin, it could be quite difficult to actually see the skin underneath the tape or fixation device, so we must do our best job to try to visualize the skin. As we assess its exit marking, we should take this opportunity to assess the patient's skin underneath the fixation device. Oftentimes, routine takedown of the tape is necessary to get a full assessment of the skin. In cases where there may be damage occurring due to the device placing pressure, we might want to move the endotracheal tube to a different position, particularly when it is an oral intubation. Just as simply as sliding it to the middle of the mouth and resecuring it, or to the opposite side of the mouth and resecuring it. Unfortunately, we do not have this option with a nasal endotracheal tube. It will take re-intubating the patient in the opposite nair to relieve the pressure on the nair. Sometimes though, we may alter our taping methods to relieve the pressure in the area of concern. Once we have completed assessment of the vital signs, breath sounds, endotracheal tube security, and skin integrity, we must look for any special considerations for our patient in their artificial airway. Does the patient have a critical or difficult airway? Should there be signage at the bedside indicating the grade of airway and who must be present should the endotracheal tube come out and need to be placed back in? Is there a laryngeal mask airway at the bedside? Or is it an infrequently used airway, such as a double lumen endotracheal tube, a bronchial endotracheal tube, a special ray endotracheal tube, or a wire-reinforced endotracheal tube? Other special considerations might be if your patient is awake and requires a bite block to keep them from occluding their airway. All assessments should be the same for a patient with a tracheostomy tube. The only consideration we should have there is whether there is a same size tracheostomy tube at the bedside as well as a smaller size tracheostomy tube and if anything about that tracheostomy tube is custom. We will want to make sure that we have that custom tube at the bedside or a backup plan in case one is not commercially available. With tracheostomy tubes, we also want to note whether there is air in the cuff or sterile water in the cuff, 
or if it has an inner cannula or not. Now we need to ensure that there is appropriate emergency equipment at the bedside. We make sure we have an appropriate sized manual ventilation device, an appropriate sized anesthesia mask, that both of them function properly, and in some special considerations for premature infants or congenital heart disease patients, do we require a blender at the bedside to adjust the FiO2. Next, we will take a look at the patient-ventilator interaction. We want to make sure our patient is comfortable. Are they triggering? When they ask for a breath, is the breath delivered in a timely fashion? Are they synchronous with the ventilator? Do they inhale and exhale without any interruption of the mechanical ventilation breaths? Are spontaneous breaths supported? Does inspiration terminate appropriately? As well as exhalation. We will note chest rise. Is it adequate? Is it symmetric? And the last step, turning towards the ventilator, we will assess the graphics. I will point you to Craig Smallwood's ventilator waveform interpretation, open pediatrics lecture, to get a more in-depth glance at how to assess graphics. But we should look at the pressure, flow, volume, and end tidal waveforms. Assessment of these waveforms will help us to optimize synchrony triggering and overall ventilation for our patient. And this concludes our patient safety assessment. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.